Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to DLN's Expert Access Series, which gives us a closer look at what we think are important uh, topics that are happening in the architecture and design uh, markets today, where we invite leading experts to help us get to have a real inside look at what's happening. Um, our guest today is Asad Serket, the brand new editor-in-chief of El Decor magazine, a favorite of all of ours. I'm not gonna really introduce uh, Asad because I'm sure we'll get into his background as we start talking here. Uh, so we're, but we're very, very happy to have him here at this very early uh, stage of his uh, tenure with the publication. Um, we're gonna do the program a little bit differently than we have in the past today in terms of the Q&A. When Asad and I originally thought about doing this, we wanted to really just kind of have everyone in the room with us. But unfortunately, um, there's too many of you. And so we're having to do this more as a traditional webinar. But in the spirit of trying to create more, um, uh, I guess, interactions and kind of uh, opportunity to really have conversations, if you'd like to ask a question in person on the screen, um, raise your hand and Megan will invite you into the room. We'll see you on video and you can ask a question and have a conversation with us. If you'd like to ask a question via the normal uh, Q&A, you can also do that and I'll ask the question on your behalf and we'll uh, just keep it as fluid as possible as we go through the conversation today. Uh, so enjoy and uh, we'll get started here. Uh, so welcome, Asad. I Thank wanted you. to kind of get started here today just by you know asking about your background. I don't think, uh, at least for me anyway, I was, when I saw your name come up on my uh, screen as joining El Decor, I said, wow, I don't know Asad. That's kind of cool and different and interesting to have someone new come into our space uh, like this. So maybe just start off by telling us a little bit about your background. And I'm going to ask you to kind of go back as far as you think we should go. And let's try to okay. make this as personal as possible. And I'll keep asking you more if I don't think you're telling us <laughs> enough. Sure. Well, I um, just wanted to start by thanking you for inviting me and thanks to everybody who joined this afternoon. It's just good to have a forum to get to chat on a Friday. It's kind of gray out. So this is a highlight, certainly of the day and of the week. So thanks. Um, and I'm also happy to have participated in what sounds like a good 2020 surprise after a year full of surprises. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know that you are alone. Uh, you know, I've worked as a design editor for a decade. Um, but there are a lot of folks who do great work in our industry who aren't necessarily in the spotlight. So I think um, it's great that, um, you know, the folks that I have worked with have been so supportive and championed my work and were so lovely when the news was announced. And it's great to meet new folks like yourself who are just excited to get to meet. Um, so I, yes, I'm Assad. Um, for anybody who is new to meeting me. Um, I grew up in New York City for the most part. And I think growing up in New York, um, you know, being a kid, riding the subway, going to the museums with my family really helped kind of steep me in design and in architecture and got me interested in these worlds. Um, and then I also was thinking uh, just in the kind of prep questions you sent, you were asking about where my love of design came from. And I was thinking about growing up in New York, but also that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother used to drag me to Westbury Manor. And I don't know if anybody on the call is on Long Island, but um, she would take me to their uh, tours and with me on her antiquing trips and that type of thing, which as a kid, as a five-year-old, you don't necessarily expect to find a five-year-old on those things who's like really enthusiastic about <laughs> looking at tapestries and silverware, but I was that five-year-old. Um, and so a position like this is just kind of a dream for me to step into, especially in a moment 
like this one where there's so much kind of interest in the home and um, excitement about magazines and media. Um, yeah, well, you mentioned- So that is uh, how I got my start York. in childhood. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned growing up in New York. I mean, where in the city did you grow up and what, was, what else was happening, you know, in that, in terms of yeah. just getting, to, getting oriented to, to all that? Sure. So I, I have lived in every borough of the city of New York, except for Staten Island. Um, so I don't know, again, if there's anybody from Staten Island joining the call. I've not lived on Staten Island. Um, I, we moved from Massachusetts, which is where I was born and my family was living. Um, as my parents finished college, they had me very young, high school sweethearts. Um, and we moved from Massachusetts to the city. We lived in the Bronx for a year. And then we mostly lived in Harlem and Sugar Hill. Um, and Harlem, as you all know, has been a hotbed of Black American cultural production and creativity for decades, um, for a long time. And I think that was such a foundational bit of my childhood and my family life and my interest in music and design and fashion, all of it kind of comes from that uptown Harlem sensibility. What, what's um, the, uh, so that what's Harlem the, was... I was gonna say, what's the uh, ethnic yeah. background of the name Cirquette? Yeah, so Cirquette actually, and like many Black Americans and folks on this call will likely already be familiar with this, um, there's some uncertainty about family history, uh, family names, family lore becomes, um, becomes history in a lot of ways. But we worked with a genealogist to discover that um, Cirquette is actually a, a name from the East African countries and regions. So formerly Nubia, present day Southern mm -hmm. Egypt. Um, Serket is the Egyptian goddess of medicine and war, which is a fun family fact we love to share. Um, and there's a Selket and Serket, they're the kind of twin goddesses and there are two statues of them in the Temple of Dendur room at the Met. Mm. That's where Serket comes from. I think it's a lovely name that often people are like, what is that? Um, so yeah. I imagined you might ask. Um, and Assad is a family name. My first name is Dorian, which many people don't know. Um, Assad is a family name. It was the name of a paternal grandfather. And I use the name um, familiarly because Dorian, my great grandfather on the other side was still alive when I was born. So just to avoid confusion, we used Assad. Right, I love it. That's a great story. Yeah, right. yeah so I want going back a little bit, I'm very curious to hear about um, you're, you're studying um, architecture, um, history and theory at Columbia. I thought that was sort of a, that helped me ground some of the uh, of your background, and I just thought we could start there and just maybe track your sure. career a little bit for everyone on the call here. Yeah, so I studied architectural history um, as an undergraduate at Columbia University, and you know I knew pretty much right away in my in my first semester, maybe six weeks in, that I was going to go down that path. I'd started initially thinking oh, I'm going to be a creative writing major, um, and my dad was like, "What are you going to do with?" <laughs> creative writing degree. He still asked the same question after I told him I was gonna declare as an architectural history major, but I think it felt a little bit more grounded in reality for him. And for me, I just was so impressed by some of the early seminars I, I took um, by the breadth of um, the breadth of beauty, the breadth of inspiration I got from looking at classics, from looking at contemporary architecture later in my time at Columbia, and also really thinking about design as a lens through which to study history and, and the world. Um, and that to me was such a gift um, to kind of discover at 18, that this thing that I've been surrounded with my whole life by living in New York was something that I could actually 
study in a yeah. really serious academic way. Yeah, well, I'm sure everyone on the call is, is wants to hear about your plans for the future, but I'm going to stick with the past just for a few more minutes. <laughs> so Sounds I good. wanted to um, also just ask you to comment about your time with Architectural Record and Architectural Digest as print publications, and then moving into the digital world at Curbed. I thought that's yeah. kind of an interesting um, you know, a way to think about things because we're all navigating between print and digital. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so maybe you can just give us a little bit of a, a sense of how you see, see all of that. Sure. So at, at Columbia, you know, one of the things that I was really determined to do was find a way to use that degree <laughs> outside of an academic environment. And I quickly learned I did not have the disposition to be an architect. So all of you on the call, I bow down to you, architects and designers in the trade. Um, I did not have the disposition for it, but I wanted to engage um, with those worlds. And for me, finding um, a venue like Architectural Record in which I could think about, write about, engage critically with architecture and design was uh, so great. Um, and so I found an internship in my junior year, the summer between my junior and senior years at Columbia um, at Architectural Record. And then it was later asked to come back in a full-time way. Um, and you know, I always loved magazines, I think, like I mentioned earlier, I was the five-year-old who was like excited about tapestries and silverware. I also was the 15-year-old who was excited about printed matter when a lot of my peers and cohorts were like fully digital, light years ahead in a lot of ways. Um, and for me, I think the tactility of magazines is what drew me having an object that, you know, people collaboratively worked on to produce and then was printed and kind of delivered to your newsstand or your mailbox. That was such a kind of magic to me. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to go into magazines. I knew that I wanted to work in design. I knew that I loved architecture. And Architectural Record happened to bring all of those things together in a really kind of perfect way. Um, so I worked at Record first as an intern, went back as an editorial assistant, was promoted to assistant editor, and was there for three years in total. Um, and you know the folks on that team to this day are still incredible mentors and journalists and advisors and friends. Um, and that had, you know, that really offered a foundation for me. Someone who didn't go to journalism school, you know, I studied architectural history, not journalism. Mm. Um, so it was my journalism school in a lot of ways. Um, and working with veteran journalists who are great at their craft will do that. Um, but of course, AD is a very different type of magazine. And um, after three years in total, um, I had a conversation with Margaret Russell, who was then the editor in chief of AD. Um, and she really wanted to bring someone who had you know, a digital sensibility. I was doing some digital things for record at the time, kind of splitting my time 50-50 um, and also new contemporary architecture in that world. She wanted to bring someone like that to the staff. Um, so I interviewed with her and in 2013, I joined there. So that was almost exactly seven years ago, actually, October, 2013. Mm. And then, then you made the shift into um, the, the all digital world. I did, so yeah, at AD, I was uh, responsible for print section of the magazine about real estate. Um, so architecturally significant real estate. I also helped with special sections around the AD 100 and um, contemporary architecture, kind of celebrating the best of the best in architecture for that year. Um, but ended up contributing to the website quite often because we were a small team and everybody was contributing to everything. And I kind of just raised my hand and was like, that's something I can do. So I wrote a lot of roundups. I did some travel stories about architect, um, you name it. I wrote it for AD's website. 
Um, right. And I quickly learned that it would just, it fed me in a different way. I think the pace of digital journalism, the speed with which those things happen, you know, getting assets, getting the photos and other assets in and getting a story up when news breaks or if an architect has um, an announcement about a building or a project, that to me was so exciting. Mm -hmm. And print is exciting in its own ways. And I acknowledge that and love that, but um, the pace of digital journalism was, it was new to me then, you know, too. So there was a novelty in it. Um, but also I just felt like it was a challenge and I wanted to take that challenge on and learn as much as I could. Um, I so I got poached away from AD to Curbed as a result of some of that work. And the then editor in chief of Curbed, Kelsey Keith, um, reached out and asked if I would join her as she rebuilt Curbed from a, a real estate focused blog into a design site. Yeah, that's so interesting because I love the idea that the way you describe print and digital just being so different, not just in terms of mm. the kind of stories you're writing, but also the pace of how you're organizing them. I, I always think these are important topics to discuss because as designers and architects who are looking to tell their stories, kind of thinking about the kinds of stories that are relevant for different publications and different mm. mediums is super important. Yeah, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons I think architecture is a tricky fit on the internet is because it's a slow medium. I mean, we all know these projects take a long time. The, the, the kind of scale of the timelines in which we work in design is much longer than in food or in fashion. Both segments of our kind of media uh, industry that have found real kind of solid footing with a kind of um, food or fashion curious audience and not just the trade. And I think a lot of that has to do with the pace of architecture, you know, how the yeah. pace at which we t can tell, can tell the stories, you know, what the stories are that are out there. Um, but that's something I think is a really kind of great challenge because in between, you know, the rendering and the, the finished building that we can all tour, there's a lot of work that goes into all of that. And so how do we communicate that work and that process in ways that will engage, you know, at both the trade audience and a non-trade audience? I think that's the kind of tightrope block for us as journalists. Yeah, and we have to create those stories. That's certainly something I think about. And then the last thing I wanna make sure we talk about because I'm mm -hmm. sure we have quite a few of DLN's corporate partners on the phone. Mm -hmm. um, you spent the last bit of your uh, pre um, the core career at a furniture brand. So yes. I love the fact that you're surrounding our world with so many different perspectives. Tell, tell us about that and how that might, you know, how's influenced the way you think about our industry. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest influence for me, and let me actually take a step back. So I worked at a Scandinavian uh, furniture brand called Hem, um, which is an upstart brand. It's about six years old now, um, based in Stockholm, Sweden. We all love Scandinavian design, as do I. Um, and so I was excited about working with kind of a new kid on the block in that realm. And the kind of brand ethos is to partner with uh, young up and coming designers, folks that you probably know, like Philippe Malouin, who's based in uh, in He's in London. Um, he kind of splits his time between Canada and London and um, Sabina Marcellus and Faye Tugut, who they just announced a chair with. Um, so really working with like a great top tier of industrial and furniture designers in the industry. Um, and I really was fascinated by how the business works, what goes into making a profitable business, what goes into engaging with a consumer audience that has uh, a lot of different priorities, you know, comfort, beauty, where, you know, uh, uh, certifications that need to be met for fire and for other safety standards, you know, all of those things were 
in my orbit, you know, I was aware of all of those things, but being on a revenue team as I was and not in an editorial or communications capacity, mm-hmm. I learned so much more about the ins and outs of a design business than I would have kind of just learning from the outside as a, as a kind of reporter on those things. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier, I like a challenge. It was definitely a challenge for me to step out of my like editor brain and work on a business development team. And I'm so glad that I did that. You know, that editor brain, it, I can't turn it off. It's like with me all the time right. forever. Um, and that was actually really, I think, beneficial for the team. And I learned so much. Hopefully it was a two-way exchange, but I definitely learned so much from the folks by being on a revenue team within a design studio furniture brand like that. Um, and yeah, the thing that I wanted to get out of it and the thing that I think I did get out of it is just really a deeper understanding of what it takes, especially, you know, I was with them still at the beginning of this pandemic and like, boy, what a time to be inside a design business, learning how customers and clients request shift, how your own kind of strategy has to shift to respond to a volatile moment like this one. Um, So that was really invaluable. I was there for a year and um, opened their first New York showroom in Soho, um, which was a project unto itself. But there was a lot of kind of great learning done in there. And the folks on that team were really fantastic. Yeah, well, we're, we're starting to get some hands raised and some questions asked, but so before we jump into that, I just want to <laughs> give you a chance just to maybe um, jump out in front of that and just tell us just about what it's, you know, what you're doing to get started at, at El Decor, kind of sure. what are the, what's, what are the, what's in your mind, but also like, how are you doing it? Like, what's your day look like? Yeah. Um, and then we'll, we'll, you know, start to be a little bit more freeform here. Sounds good. Well, one of the things that I've, been thinking about kind of priorities wise is how to meet our readers where they are. Um, And by that, I mean, obviously we've got a beautiful print magazine and 30 years of history kind of underpinning everything that we do at El Decor, but also we have a a really engaged digital audience that we've been serving, uh, I think quite well, but um, there's so much space, you know, the, the internet is expansive, you know, the ability for us to tell stories online Um, is so much more kind of malleable and open than what you can do with a tactile object like a magazine. And that's the beauty of having both mediums with which to tell design stories at Eltacore. So I'm definitely thinking about how to expand our digital footprint and how we tell those stories to our audience. Um, But I really started by listening, by like listening to the editorial team that's already at the magazine doing great work listening to our business partners who've been partnered with the magazine for years and years and are invested in its health and vitality and its next chapter, listening to my folks, my friends who are architects and interior designers and glass blowers and floral arrangers and all the rest to to ask them what magazines do they engage with? What stories do they wanna see? Uh, What sector of design do they feel is not being highlighted in the way that they feel it deserves? Um, and those are conversations I've had for years and years with people, so none, none of it is new. Um, but I definitely take a kind of listener's approach to starting. This is my this is the end of my seventh week. Soon I won't be able to count in weeks, and we'll have to move to months. But this is the end of my seventh week, and in this seven week period, I found it so valuable just to, with my vision kind of tucked in a pocket on the side pause and think about what other people are thinking, what other people are feeling about the magazine, both internally and externally, and then synthesizing all of that to make something that I think will be really, really strong and that I'm excited about sharing with everybody. 
Um, so my day to day um, is a lot of that, a lot of meetings, a lot of calls, a lot of listening. Yeah, I was going to say, does uh, starting a job like this in um, sort of a pandemic change how that works? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, everything. <laughs> I mean, obviously, everything is virtual. Um, but we were saying before we got started officially, it does mean that there's a lot more kind of time to meet with people that you wouldn't otherwise have access to or have the ability to sit down like this with. Um, and I think that that is a silver lining. If there are any silver linings to be had in this incredibly tragic, dire moment, that is a silver lining that, you know, I get to sit down with you, that I get to talk to uh, interior designers who've worked with the magazine for years who are in Paris, in California, in Tokyo, like really all over um, across time and space and, and used digital platforms to make that happen. Um, I do have some in-person meetings, masked, distance, the whole pandemic nine yards, but um, I found people's flexibility around using tools like this really, really helpful as we get started. Right, well, we, um, it always takes one person to get these conversations started. So uh, <laughs> a, a woman who I know to be quite brave uh, has raised her hand and is Great. starting us off here. So um, Megan, do you want to uh, get, um, get, get Pamela up on the screen for us? Yep, she should be. I don't know if you know each other, but uh, Pamela Babby uh, is the founder of BAMO in San Francisco, a, a significant uh, design firm. So, um, Pam, here We've you go. We've never met, but here we are. Okay, well, we I can't was see just... you, Pamela. You can't we can hear you. Video on. We can hear you, but we can't see you. I don't know what anybody can see or hear these days. There's so there many. Hi, oh, there you are. <laughs> Hi, Pamela. Hi. Um, I was thinking this morning as I woke up that one of the most important things to a magazine mm -hmm. is that that magazine actually has a point of view. Mm -hmm. And so I'm listening to you and it's uh, thank you very much because you speak so well and so wonderfully in sentences and things. <laughs> but I was thinking, gosh, it's like one of those peripheral vision tests. Mm -hmm. There's sparks from every direction, the suppliers, the advertisers, the friends, mm -hmm. the not friends, the, the designs that you don't like, the designs that you do like. And I was just wondering um, how, how you sort of go about setting up what, what's gonna be, what's gonna, what's gonna be the landmark of the magazine? Because I, I, I think the magazine suffered a bit in the last few years. And I think it needs to have a strong point of view. Hmm. I'm just thinking, how in the world do you start melting down your point of view? Yeah. I mean, it can change from issue to issue, but there will be an overall kind of uh, thing that pulls it all together. And then I yeah. see digital as sort of being being the outskirts and the digital hmm. is, is not nearly as exciting as receiving the magazine. Sorry, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a totally legitimate stance. You don't need to apologize for that. Well, there are a few questions in there and I'm gonna actually work backwards. And I would say um, digitally, it should feel, it shouldn't feel like the outskirts. I think that that actually is really good feedback because what it means is the print magazine that you get and the digital kind of offerings that we give don't necessarily have a relationship that's clear to you. And that to me, I think is the biggest gap when we talk about ldecor.com and Instagram and all the various platforms that we use digitally, how do those things, what's the ecosystem? How do those things live together? The digital should support 
what the print magazine is, which is a beautiful object and a snapshot in time. The digital offerings have to feel like they are related. You know, they're not gonna ever be the same thing. So I agree with you on that front. The, the print magazine is a print magazine and the digital offerings are digital, um, but they need to feel like they're in conversation with each other. Um, and also like, you don't have to like the digital, you know, you can focus on the print magazine and it should feed you everything you need so that you don't feel like you're missing a thing. And I hope that we'll find ways to engage you digitally too. But if you only look at the print magazine, that's totally fine by me. Um, and then you talked about perspective and point of view and thinking about all of the various voices I'm hearing in my seventh week um, that editors who've been with the magazine for years have been hearing. I always start with the question in terms of defining my point of view, how does this story, how does the magazine make me feel? What is the story, the narrative that we're telling? Because you're right, from issue to issue, we want it to be slightly different so that people aren't bored so that they come back to us from month to month. Um, but I also want there to be kind of a core uh, question that we ask in every issue. And the question for me is, how does this make me feel? What are we engaging? Like, what's the conversation? What is the journalistic intent beyond celebrating a beautiful room or a beautiful object? Um, and that perspective for me has to be one of engaging with the culture at large, not just thinking about our kind of bubbles of design, both interior design and architecture, but really thinking about how design rubs up against how we live, like what it means to live with Regency furniture in the 21st century, what it means to be a modernist and fill your house with Prouvé. You know, the, the, it feels, I think a little counterintuitive because shelter as a category hasn't always done that, but it's always been right under the surface. You know, those questions about why we make these decisions um, and why we make them is because they make us feel a certain way, because they make us feel grounded, anchored. Uh, they excite us, they give us comfort, they give us joy and beauty. Um, I don't think that those are small or inconsequential questions, but I just think they need to be asked more directly and addressed in ways that feel like they're taking, you know, we're taking them seriously from issue to issue. So I don't know what you mean when you say that your impression of the magazine has changed over the years, but I hope you get what I'm saying. And I'm being a little vague because a magazine is a kind of living object. And so it's gonna change over time. The, con the kinds of conversations we have will change over time, but the journalistic intent has to be there in every issue. Are you working? I was, really I was gonna say quickly, uh, are you working Asad toward um, like a launch issue that will have your, you know, Signature. really significant imp impact on? Yes, I am. I can say this is like the first time I'm saying this in public. So you get the scoop. It will be the March issue, March, 2021. Um, that issue, the March issue will be kind of finishing up in the, at the end of January to debut in mid-February. So you'll start to see like, I mean, look, I'm already here. So I've been helping with display, copy, you know, the, head, the cover lines, headlines on stories and all of that since week one when we were closing our November issue. Um, but it's been happening really subtly. And obviously Celine Velandes who took on the editorial directorship in April has been doing great work as well. But that March, 2021 issue will be the issue where you start to see some of these things. Okay. And I'm it looks like Pamela- calendar. Great. Pamela, it looked like you wanted to follow up with a question. Oh, I, I just wanted to say that's, that's a good answer. The part I'm looking for is what I'm going to watch for in the March issue is mm -hmm. what I see. What will I see is your personal touch. And also mm -hmm. 
Um, I think an exciting part that I'm sort of hearing in the background is it it might be just a tad more educational and a more a tad more I don't want to say professional but um, the term educational to me is missing in in some of the things today an intelligent approach to the way a project is described or shown or why it's shown rather mm -hmm. than just I'm showing it. Here it is. Just make what you can out of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'll look forward to that. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I think, um, um, Asad, you know, one of the things I always think about is I've had the privilege of knowing so many uh, editors over the years and feeling like um, those relationships are two-way relationships mm -hmm. and very pri privileged in my mind. Um, in terms of how I, you know, how it helps me do my job. Um, can you maybe just share a little bit about how you like to interact with people in the design community and, you know, how that dialogue can, um, can really happen between our members and you? Totally. I mean, I, I've said this to the staff as we get to know each other. I've said this to interior designers that I've been fortunate enough to have Zoom calls with, kind of introductory Zoom calls with or catch up Zoom calls with. I have an open door policy. You know, my email address is real easy to figure out if you have anybody else's email address at Hearst. Um, I might not be able to respond right away, but I do respond. As you can all imagine, I get a lot of emails, but it's important for me to talk to people directly. Even if I have to say, you know, let's find another time to schedule a real, schedule a real conversation. I loop somebody else on the staff in to move that forward. Um, I definitely want it to feel like a two-way exchange. And, you know, in, in some of the kind of opening conversations I did when this news was announced, I said, I wanna make a magazine that feels like a surprise to people that feels like, oh, I had no idea that that was, you know, that that designer was doing that work or that, you know, I should pay attention to this kind of design, this city as a design capital. But I want that exchange, that surprise to feel like a two-way exchange. You know, if there are designers who usually work in one way, and they find themselves being challenged by a client to, to work in a completely new way, call me up. Like, I wanna know about that. I wanna see what the fruit of that labor has been because that's how we all kind of push both the design industry and kind of shelter as a category forward. So definitely yeah. open door, get in touch. I like to talk and I'm open yeah. to it. I, and I love the idea that um, you're interested in things that people are coming across that feel surprising to them. Yeah. And maybe that's surprising to other people. Right. Um, and surprise really to... quickly, just to add, surprise yeah. doesn't necessarily mean new. It doesn't mean necessarily yeah. like a new young voice. It could be somebody who is a titan in our industry surprising us with a project that has a different perspective. And that's always really fun to me too. Yeah. Well, speaking of titans, we have one who has raised his hand and would like to uh, jump on the video with you. So Megan, uh, do you want to let uh, uh, Timothy in? Yep, he should be here in just a second. All right, Timothy Corrigan. I don't know if you know each other, but... Um... Uh, meet Assad. Um, there we go. I think you're on mute, yeah, but um, <laughs> you're muted, but I can see you. <laughs> He's still muted. Uh, you are, there we go. There we go. Hi. Hi. Great, great to meet you. Um, great to meet you I'm too. curious, you know, design is always on a pendulum going from one extreme mm. to another. I'd be just curious to see where do you feel the, that pendulum is today? Where, where in design do you see mm. it going to? we're swinging really quickly away from maximalism, aren't we? I mean, we've been kind of, we've been kind of over there for a while. And now I think 
a result of being um, so, uh, I'm trying to find a word to describe our new cycle, but you know, as a result of being kind of so inundated with uh, visual, you know, infographics about the election and Instagram posts about somebody's, you know, interior design decisions, just all of it. I think mm -hmm. we're all, uh, you know, not super keen on like an ascetic monastic minimalism, but really thinking about middle grounds, thinking about balance. I think to answer your question, like, and I, I think you can tell that I'm speaking for myself also, like I'm really invested right now in finding some equilibrium. And I think that that's something we're all going for in our homes too. And look, maximalism is not going away, certainly not going away from the pages of El Decor, which has always been a celebration of maximalism to a certain extent. Um, but also minimalism is feels cold and I think a little um, difficult to get a hug out of in a time like this. Mm -hmm. um, so the pendulum, right, you're right. The pendulum is, that's a perfect metaphor because we will, we will swing back to maximalism probably sometime in this, you know, 20s, you know, the roaring, this roaring right, 20s right. after the pandemic. But right now in these early 20s, I think we're all kind of going for a warm modernism. Yeah, and you know, I something think, that I mean, feels livable. I, yeah, I think that that whole area, that whole aspect of comfort has become mm -hmm. more and more important. And that sense of, mm -hmm. of, 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 of safety and, and feeling cocooned totally. and, and comforted by the world is, is right. so important. Yeah, and for some people that is like, that is an explosion of pattern and color and that will cocoon them. Yes. Um, you can see from my very stark background and I've always, I'm, I'm like keeping my background very simple, uh -huh. but you know, it's like, that's different for everybody. A plant is a thing that gives me a feeling of feeling, you know, nurtured, um, natural light. I have windows on two sides of my office, which is a gift, but you know, that that's, that's different for everybody. But well, welcome, and we're so pleased to have Thank you, you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the question. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, maybe um, so. Aside, you're speaking to us from uh, Brooklyn. Uh, I am. What, you want, I mean, I know you don't want to show off too much there, but um, what is your space uh, like there? Well, since I'm a word person, I'll describe it. So I'm sitting in my office. I'm first of all, yes, I'm in Brooklyn. I live near Prospect Park in the Brooklyn Museum. I actually voted early at the Brooklyn Museum, which was a great experience good place for civic participation in that museum. Um, my partner and I, a partner of eight years, he and I moved into this apartment six years ago. Um, we're on the top floor of a 1925 townhouse near the park. Um, it's a great kind of neighborhood to live in, especially in a moment when we're all in our homes more than ever. And I've gotten to know my neighbors to an even greater extent because we all are at home so much more and kind of watching out for each other. Um, I live across the street from a church, which has been a really nice kind of center of community. I don't attend the church personally, but it just is great to know that that community is there. Um, so the layout of my apartment, and this is something that maybe we'll talk about, but open plans talking about a pendulum swing have kind of fallen out of favor. And I've been so uh, kind of excited by the fact that I don't live in an open plan space. I think it can work for people who live that way. I love rooms and walls personally. Um, so because this is an older house, um, about a century old, I'm in a room that is separated from an entry and then there's a living room. Um, and down that hall, there's a kitchen with an eat-in kind of eating area and two bedrooms in the back. One we use as a guest room. My, my partner works out of that room. Um, so I'm thinking about even my new appreciation for this setup during a pandemic to answer your question. But that's what Are my setup is. Are these greens and creams part of your palette? 
Yes, you know, green is my is my talismanic color. That's what I always say. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that my little icon is not a photo of me. It's just a green dot. Um, I, it is a very specific shade of green. I'm a bit of a color nerd. And so it, I have an RGB code for that specific green. Um, it's kind of become uh, like a branded icon for me. So my personal website has that green. And um, mm. this notebook that I use for all my work is basically that shade of green. Um, green, you know, green is a color I like the of way the greens all work together. So thank you. Thank you for saying so. I didn't intend to put on a green jacket for this, but I was like, <laughs> it's chilly. And I grabbed the jacket and of course it's green. So here we are. Well, good. We have some questions coming up in the uh, Q&A box, so I'll ask on behalf of uh, those people. Um, right. I think, you know, for, uh, for a lot of designers and perhaps others as well, um, there's a sort of a, uh, a maybe a, a big question about why celebrities uh, are so prominent in uh, design media, mm -hmm. meaning like the use of celebrities. Can you just, you know, one, to help us understand that generally why that happens, and then two, maybe help us understand your perspective or your, uh, where you want to go with that as part of the repertoire that you have available to you. Sure. I mean, the, the, that first question about why, I think we all know the answer to. The, the why of it is celebrity culture drives business, and it also drives interest. Um, and whether or not you are, if you, you, know, you specifically are a fan of the individual celebrity, you know that people out there are. Um, and, you know, I do actually think it's important to engage a consumer audience, you know, folks who are not on this call, who are interested in design, um, engage them through the lenses that they'll be most likely to keep interested and be involved in the conversations that we're having. And for a lot of people that is celebrity um, because those are the folks who drive cultural conversation in so many cases. Those are the folks who drive conversations about taste, which we could have a whole separate, we could talk about taste and what taste is for a long time. Um, so I understand it that way. You know, I, I worked at AD for two years and AD's always been a place where the kind of homes of celebrities have been celebrated for years and years. So it's not new to design uh, right. now. Um, and Eldercore is has been the same in some cases. Um, for me, I ask myself who, you know, which celebrities and, and why that celebrity. I think celebrities are people too, to use a people magazine <laughs> phrase. And like, if they have hired someone really intelligent in our world to work with them, to design a home that is um, beautiful and functions in the way that is important for their life, then that's a story. That's a really, that's a, a valid story to tell. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. Um, but I think the, the people are wrinkled when they feel like those stories are being told in the place of other stories in design. Um, and so again, it goes back to balance. You know, it's, if you have a celebrity uh, story that anchors one issue, what is the anchor for the next issue? That's just a question I'm asking hypothetically, but also obviously when I'm asking um, as the editor-in-chief of Eldecor, because I don't think there's anything wrong, certainly with involving celebrities who've partnered with great interior designers or architects on projects, involving them in the, in the pages of the magazine. But I think we ask ourselves why and how and how often, and that can be our guiding light. Yeah. And so certainly for Eldecor going forward, you know, we'll, we'll keep talking, I'm open. Um, I want design to be the lead of the story. I always say, you know, we celebrate at Eldecor design with a capital D. And so what that means is design in any case with, 
you know, Merrill Streep to, you know, the new ceramicist working in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you know, the design has to be the lead of that story. Right. Well, that's perfect lead into the sort of another question that came through the uh, Q&A that I think is um, <clears throat> maybe the exactly where you're going, which is, I think there's a question about, do you have a sense of how you want to cover individual design and architecture principles or firms uh, through the mm -hmm. magazine and really tell their individual stories? Yeah, sure. So obviously there are the projects, which are a great way mm -hmm. to dive into how a firm or an individual studio, you know, kind of operated solo, how that person or group works um, and how they work, not just as a design team, but how they work with a client, how they communicate their vision, how they synthesize the client's needs and vision with their own. Um, but then also, you know, a lot of shelter publications, you know, House and Garden did this quite well, um, have stories in the well, like in the center of the magazine, those meaty longer stories. Um, that are all interiors. You know, those stories can often be all interiors. And one thing that if folks have looked at, you know, our November issue and our upcoming December issue, one thing that we've been talking about at Alto Core is stepping away from that model a bit and having one story in the well alongside all of the projects that is really people driven. Um, and that I think is a great way to talk about what firms are up to and not just what they're up to in a kind of abstract way, but how, their work is responding to the culture, to people's questions about how to make their home more safe. You know, I feel like we're talking about HVAC systems and filtration more than ever, which is like not <laughs> a super fun topic, but is so integral to how we think about what our homes are and what they do. Um, so that is one way, certainly thinking about, you know, using those center of the book, those longer stories to have a conversation about some element of the design world, whether that's an architect, or um, someone working in antiques, which is the story that we have in, in our December issue that you'll all see soon. Um, and then the other way is, and you know, I, I understand Pamela's point earlier, which I think was a great point about digital being a very different type of offering, but I think finding ways to bring those designers own voices to the magazine, like actually hearing them. Um, I love listening to NPR and the radio has been such a grounding force through the pandemic and I think there's something about the kind of beauty and magic of the human voice. And I love hearing architects talk about their work. Um, you get a real sense of where their passions are, what their interests are in a given moment. And the internet does provide a place to do that, to actually bring someone's real voice and presence to, to, to the page, the digital page. Well, speaking of digital, and by the way, I don't know about you, but I thought um, hearing from uh, Pamela and, and Tim, Timothy were great. So, so great. I want to encourage yeah, more no, people to be yes, brave and raise your hand and <laughs> jump onto the screen here because we're all friends here and it's meant to be fun. Um, but in any case, I think we, it's pretty hard to have a conversation about uh, design these days um, and media without talking about Instagram. Maybe help us, you know, think about, you know, what do you see out there and, and um, how, how does that work in terms of the way you see the world? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Instagram turned 10 this year. Um, and it's crazy to think that it is both 10 years old and also only 10 years old, given the amount of influence it has had in our, and really in every creative industry and in any visual industry. Um, you know, Instagram is a democratizing force to a certain extent. You know, I think a lot of 
the designers, certainly young designers who I would not have otherwise known are people that I've discovered via Instagram, people that have, you know, long before I was the editor-in-chief of El Decor DM'd me to ask about, you know, what fabricators I might know that they could turn to in Brooklyn or architects that might be looking to partner with a lighting designer or all of that. Um, so it's become a force, not just for visual um, kind of, uh, you know, visual cues, but also communication. Like people do use it to communicate with people they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, I think we all have a certain amount of Instagram fatigue. I certainly speak for myself when I say I see a lot. You know, we all just see so much. And I use the word inundation earlier or inundate earlier. And I often feel that after an hour of scrolling on Instagram. I was going to say, how many times a day do you look at the app? <laughs> I give myself, I have limited my time on the app. So I look at it twice a day, the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And that's mm -hmm. it. Um, and I usually have to thus like schedule my own posting. So like I post today for the first time in maybe a, almost a week because I just, it's, it, you know, it requires time and thought and anything good I put out, anything I put out into the world, I want to make sure that I've been thoughtful about it. Instagram doesn't yeah. really reward that. And I think that's part of why we all can be a little fatigued by Instagram. Instagram wants you to be posting and the algorithm supports people who frequently post and people who have a lot of likes and comments on their posts, but that's not really, it's not really the work. It's not really the work of being a designer. It's not really the work of being a journalist. It's just a platform to use to spread the word. I, when I saw your post today, I thought about um, you and our conversation because I asked myself, when you post on Instagram, are you posting for you or have you lost your own identity now and it's really an El Decor post? How does that work? I'm posting for me. I think that'll become clearer over, clearer over time. But even if you've looked at the things, even if you look at the things I've posted <clears throat> since I started or since the news was announced, I mean, look, there's a, there's a certain amount of strategy in posting on social media, whether you are an editor in chief or not, but I post for me, you know, what are the things that I want to communicate on that day? At the beginning of all of this, this wonderful process, this new journey, it was, this is me, like, this is who I am for folks like yourself who were not familiar with me. I want you to know what I'm interested in, what type of design gets me excited. Um, but also I post the things that I wanna talk about and so today, today I posted about totems. I've found that totems are trending. Um, and I'm hearing and talking a lot about them recently um, at every scale from seven feet tall to you know, bonsai height. Um, and that's just because it was a fun thing. And I've been going to see art and galleries downtown and meeting with designers and thought it was fun. Um, but no, I, I don't want to be subsumed by a kind of sense of obligation to post. And I also want to post things that feel authentic to my perspective as an editor and as a person. Yeah, well, um, just trying to juggle between our different mediums here. Um, I, there's a question that came through I want to ask and then we'll, we have another hand raised. Okay, so um, the question I want to ask, which I think is interesting when you think about what's happening in media companies these days, it honestly seems a little confusing sometimes. What, what is the, um, how do you perceive or how much can you uh, uh, perceive as the scope of the El Decor brand? And by that, what I mean is we've talked about the print publication and the, um, let's assume you say digital, I'm assuming that's largely what's coming through either the, what being posted to the mm -hmm. website or uh, something, you know, through that. Yeah. And what, is there a world of like product and e-commerce and product collaborations that's kind of part of the scope that's possible too? 
Oh, I think so. I mean, if it feels authentic to the brand conversation, which is one about how we live, then absolutely. I mean, how we live has so much to do, obviously, about what we buy um, and why we buy it and why we make those decisions. Um, you know, I'm, I am only seven weeks in, so we, I've not gone that far down that road yet, but from the brand experience I have with both a design studio and also as an editor for years, I know that those conversations drive business. They um, help people understand what the brand's ethos and priorities are. And they also are fun. You know, it's like, I want to get involved in talking about furniture and objects for sale and scented candles and lighting and whatever else. You know, I'm just throwing things out there randomly, but. I think all of those things are part of how we extend the brand's footprint and hopefully connect with new audiences so that they'll come back to, you know, this and actually yeah. look at the print magazine. That's an interesting way to think about it. That, you know, it's about connecting and not Absolutely. just about selling or uh, whatever it might yeah. be. Uh, so Megan, do you want to invite uh, Daniela onto the screen here? Yeah, hang on a second. I love this. I know it's great to see people's faces. <laughs> there we go. All right. I wasn't planning to be it was on perfect uh, timing. <laughs> uh, multimedia today, but um, so much of what you've said has been very intriguing and it's just kind of right at the heart of, you know, home and so on and so forth. It's been, I think, more present than ever because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I want to raise probably a more difficult question, which is has to do with, you know, a lot of the cultural concerns today. I live in Philadelphia, right in the heart of mm -hmm. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a multiracial city. Um, I teach at Bryn Mawr and Haverford College, and we Haverford students have decided to strike, uh, sit and have an academic strike because of the shootings that happened in Philadelphia. Um, so a lot of the conversations that I'm involved with, um, also because I, I myself am not a residential architect, I do mostly uh, work for schools. Um, so a lot of the conversations that I've been involved with recently have to do with anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And that has to be one of the big, you know, cultural subjects of this year, and I'm sure going on into next year. And how do you address that? And how will you address that? Because I think it's it's really at the core of where this country is at the moment. Yeah, I actually, I, I would say that that's not a difficult question. Thank you for that question, first of all. Thank you, I appreciate <laughs> it. I, but I would say it's actually not a difficult question because the answer is you address it. So often in our worlds, because we are architects, because we're designers, um, we find ourselves kind of, or we feel as if we're on the sidelines. I have felt this way as a design journalist thinking, oh, my friends who are at the New York Times or at the Washington Post are really in it, you know? And like, they every day are writing for A1 and they have to think about the day's political news and so they're in it. But, and I've said this a few times, you know, Breonna Taylor was killed at home. She was killed in her home. Yeah. What are the, what are the implications of that for me as a home and shelter editor? It means that I have to reckon with this idea that our homes bring us inspiration and beauty and comfort but that home for everyone is not an inviolate concept. Home, your home can be violated by the state in this case. Um, and it's, that is what makes the question difficult, but I think the answer is straightforward. And the answer is 
to just address it. You know, we had someone, a great writer, Gabriella Fuller, write an essay for us for our December issue, which will be uh, out soon, about her own experience of the pandemic. And, you know, she uh, wrote really wonderfully about the kind of paradox of those early days of feeling comfortable at home and feeling really grateful to be protected, but also knowing that you were lucky, knowing that it was rare, knowing that it was tenuous also, that you know you could go to the grocery store and bring the virus home with you. Or you know if you're black in this country, you even if you don't feel like you are in direct, kind of in the direct path of harm, that it's uh, the idea is looming over you, the anxiety lives with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's, that's difficult to address only because it's uncomfortable, but not because it's hard. Um, but and so I, I will say just for me, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of actually just being brave enough to tell those stories alongside our discussions about luxury and about joy and about beauty. Right. Because you know, the tension is what makes an interesting magazine and also the tension is real life. You know, like the tension mm-hmm. is what we all actually have to deal with. And what I certainly, as a black editor-in-chief of a shelter publication like El Decor with its great history, am thinking about and, and trying to address in ways that feel authentic to the brand as well. Right, because it's a question I've been asking myself, how do we change our right. practice or how, how do we um, be more anti-racist? Mm-hmm. And certainly we do an awful lot in terms of the types of um, clientele that we have. We are currently doing a, um, a big project for Philadelphia Youth Basketball, which is a education uh, leadership mentorist, uh, mentor kind of organization along with basketball or using basketball mm-hmm. as, the, as the thread. Um, we're working for Lincoln University, mm-hmm. you know, other historically black uh, universities. Um, but how do we get away or how, how do we become even more anti-racist as a, yeah. you know, as a firm? It's yeah. a big, huge question for me. So it's, a, be, bit, it's a big question. I would, I would love to see something that, that um, oh, came will, out uh, in print. <laughs> I will, I think I'm, I'm encouraged by the dialogue that we're having on this front, you know, getting, having the conversation in public and just being willing to share um, perspectives, I think is a huge start. And I'll just add a note that um, the DLM's next expert access, um, which is on November 13th, uh, we've invited Simone Morris, who is an award-winning diversity and inclusion coach, uh, to come in and just kind of give all of us as leaders of individual firms uh, just a bit of a kind of overview of what we should be thinking about as business leaders and uh, help us to think about these issues within design and architecture and uh, design companies. So it's a perfect uh, kind of plug for our next uh, conversation, which you'll be hearing about as we kind of prep for that uh, coming up on November 13th. Um, I think we're kind of running out of time here. Um, so I know these things always seem to go fast. <laughs> I wanted to ask sort of one last question, maybe just to close this because I, um, you know, I wanted to get to this. It's just, you know, what, what, what do you think it's going to take or what do you imagine success, success looks like for design and architecture firms looking for over the next few years here um, as a way to maybe help think about the kinds of, you know, practices or ways of doing business that, that you're excited to kind of be connecting with? Yeah, that's, I mean, 
that's a many pronged. The answer to that is many pronged because obviously there is financial success and the health of you know, all of our businesses, um, which we all work so hard to assure or ensure. Um, and then there of course is metrics for success that are less tangible than that. And I think one of them is um, just the, you know, the last question we addressed in that conversation about engaging, you know, engaging with um, communities outside of our bubbles and really thinking about how our work runs parallel to conversations, sociocultural conversations outside of design. Um, and sometimes that just means thinking about our own kind of client rosters, our own, the company, you know, the people that we meet with regularly, the people that we hire, the people whose projects we celebrate on Instagram or wherever else. I mean, what the kind of makeup of those people are. And I don't just mean actually the kind of racial makeup of those people, but also their geographic location, their gender, their um, kind of specific, you know, all of the typologies within which we work. I mean, all of it, I think is worth diversifying um, and will lead to more successful businesses because we will see more, we'll be inspired mm. by more, we'll talk to more people and hopefully connect with them on different levels. Yeah. So that's what I would say. I mean, it's, that feels very kind of woo-woo, but that's, that's how I feel. I, well, I think what you're saying, which I think is the kind of underscores the whole conversation about inclusion is that we will grow mm. by virtue of exactly. seeing more, doing more, engaging more. And, you know, maybe um, I, um, I mentioned DLN's next expert access with Simone Morris. I'll also mention in that same context that um, also coming up in December 3rd and 4th is our um, big virtual summit. Uh, it's kind of daunting to uh, think about um, converting what's normally just such an extravaganza for us in the offline world uh, into something that can succeed and really inspire people online in our virtual space, but I think we're going to stretch as far as we can imagine in doing that. So I'm hoping everyone on this call will plan to join us. Registration will open any day now. Uh, we're looking forward to having a lot of people um, as part of that. And uh, all of the registration fees are going to fund the Design Leadership Foundation, whose mission is to support diversity and, edu diversity and education within the design uh, industry. So we're kind of connecting the dots on a lot of different topics here as we uh, conclude this conversation with Assad. And thank you so much for uh, for being here. It's uh, We really appreciate it. And thank I you. hope everyone in our group feels closer to you as a result of that. And um, we'll be, of course, posting this uh, conversation on our website so people can come back and, and look at it. And, um, and if they missed it, um, have a chance to see this uh, as well. So again, thank Great. you so much and uh, look thank forward you. to many more conversations in the future. Yes, thank you everybody for joining today. It was really great to hear your questions and to get to chat. Yeah, thanks so Appreciate much, Asad. Yeah. Bye. Take care. Bye.